Well, when I was a teenager, uh, my dad and I took a trip to Colorado one summer. We went with another um, father and son from our hometown in southwest Missouri. And kind of the, the goal, the ultimate challenge of our summer trip to Colorado was that we were going to climb Long's Peak, all 14,256 feet of it. It is one of the tallest peaks in Colorado, and it is a very challenging climb. It really is. So we were, we were energized about it. We knew it was going to take everything we had to make it to the summit, but we were excited about it. Uh, we got out there, and we were ready to go at 4 a.m., one morning, we were there at the trailhead, ready to start the ascent. We had made the, tr the climb one time before, but we had camped on the way. So this time we needed to get a super early start. So 4 a.m., we're there, we get started on the trail. It's very, very dark, all right, at 4 a.m. in the mountains. And so it is, I mean, it is tough just to see where the trail is and to try to navigate this trail together. And so we're kind of following in a single file line and off we go. And I guess it was about... 45 minutes into the climb that I first heard quiet um, conversations between my father and the other father, Denny, about, are you sure we're on the right trail? <laughs> um, and so these conversations went on, and, and well, we, let's go a little further. I think we are, yeah. The, the thing was, we should have really been starting to gain some elevation, but it was like we'd go up and we'd go back down. We'd go up, and we go back down. And so it was about an hour into the climb, so about 15 minutes after that conversation happened, that the, the dads officially decided, yeah, I think we're on the wrong trail. So we turned around, and we went back. And we had missed a turn. We had missed a trail marker very early on. I mean, just maybe 100 feet from the parking lot. Um, we had missed it. And so we get almost all the way back to the car. And I mean, just that feeling. If you've ever, you, you may have missed a trail before, so something like this has happened, and there is this feeling. I mean, we knew going in, this climb was going to take everything we had, and now we've wasted essentially going and coming back two hours. And not only are we kind of, the edge is taken off physically at this point, I mean, the edge is definitely taken off psychologically, thinking we're starting over. And so we did start over, and we made it about two miles from the peak, but that, that last two miles is by far the hardest part of the climb. Made about two miles from one of the, the other guy, his, the other younger guy, his knee had gone out, he played football, and his knee was killing him. We just turned around and came back, and we did not make that climb successfully. Um, so it, we turned around, and we came back. And that was, that was not fun. I, I do remember, though, um, after that initial uh, mistake was confirmed, I do remember the other dad, Denny, saying, you know, we may have been walking down the wrong trail for two hours, but we made great time, you know? <laughs> and so we all, had a, we all had a nice laugh, you know, kind of to keep from crying at that point. Um, but th that, that's, that's the way it went. Well, Jesus has a climb marked out for you. Signs are posted and he wants to make the journey, the adventure. He wants to take it by your side. He wants to go with you. Um, it's going to be amazing. It's going to be amazing. In Luke chapter 12, we have the story of a man, a real man, and then a fictional character who appear to have gotten on the wrong trail. And sometimes you and I and, and everyone, sometimes 
we're making great time, but we're going in the wrong direction. Sometimes we're being very successful, just not at the, the right things. And so this is what this story in Luke chapter 12 is about. For many, the darkness that hides the trail, the darkness that kind of shrouds the way they need to go is the love of money. We have this going on in Luke chapter 12. Let's pick it up in verses 13 to 15. Jesus is teaching. Someone in the crowd uh, called out, Teacher, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. Jesus replied, Friend, who made me a judge over you to decide such things as that? He said, Beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. So here, the scene, Jesus is teaching. There is a crowd. Um, Some people want to see a miracle. Everybody wants to hear some kind of teaching that will help them live, help them love, help them serve God better. And as this scene is, is, is unfolding, as Jesus is teaching, from in the middle of the crowd, there is this shout, right? This shout. I mean, this guy just shouts out, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And everybody's kind of like, what? Kind of weird that the guy would interrupt in this way. Um, kind of weird that he would take over this moment when clearly Jesus is at the center of attention at this point. Um, but this, this young man is, is very interested in getting what he thinks he deserves. His father has passed away. It's time to spread out the wealth here. It's time to divide up the inheritance. But his brother isn't being fair with him. So nothing is going to get in his way of getting what he thinks he deserves. No obstacle will stand between him and his share of the cash. Nothing else matters. He has, in fact, in his life... This fixation on getting his part of the inheritance has become an obsession. There is no enjoyment in the simple things of life for him. There is no enjoy- At this point in his life, there's no enjoyment over a delicious meal. Um, there's, there's no desire to dance when music is being played. Everything has been consumed by his obsession to get the money he thinks he deserves, and he shows up hoping that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, can be sort of a tool, some leverage that he can use to get his share of the cash. Look, friend, Jesus replies, I am not a probate judge. Um, This is not probate court. uh, Who am I to, to decide who gets what share of the cash. I mean, why are you coming to me with this issue? But Jesus has this remarkable supernatural gift of being able to see into people's hearts. And Jesus knows exactly what's going on in this guy's heart. This isn't a question of justice. Jesus sees the deeper question in this case is a question of greed. And so Jesus tells a story. Rabbi Jesus, as he often did, tells a story to make a point. Luke 12, pick it up in verse 16. He told them this story, this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. He said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. 
and there I will store all my grain and all my goods. I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And then Jesus closes with this teaching. This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. Before we go any further, let me just say, this week, I felt as I was working through this text, I felt like I had just walked into North Park Mall, and you know, right, right as you come in the entrance, there's this like eight-foot-tall mall directory, and if you're trying to find the Apple store, you're trying to find somewhere special, you look at that directory, and you see, right by that entrance, you see this red dot, and it says, you are here. I felt as I was working through the text this morning, or, or this, this week, I felt like the Holy Spirit had drawn this red arrow and had said, you are here. This text is where we are. This is a text written to people for, for the benefit of people who have been financially blessed. This is a text written to North Dallas, all right? And before we jump into the text this morning, before we jump into the guy's mistakes, we've got to kind of recognize, in a lot of ways, this, this fictional character in this parable, this rich fool, in a lot of ways, this guy is a prototype of, of success, American style. I mean, this guy is living the American dream, like centuries before the pilgrims would ever land at Plymouth Rock. And you know the pilgrims. I mean, they were all about the American dream with their beamers and their big mansions and all that stuff. Well, this guy is living the dream before the dream ever came into being. The guy is a hardworking farmer in Jesus' story. He's got a good head for business. Um, through his hard work, through his knack for making money, and, and, and through his his, his just devotion to growing his fortune, he has done very well for himself. Now, you may ask, how do you know he was a hard-working farmer? If you ask that, you don't know much about farming. Farming is hard work. There are no successful farmers. There are no successful farmers who are lazy. This was a hard-working guy. The character in the parable really was able to grow his fortune, was able to make lots and lots of cash. His farm had prospered. It had outgrown his storage bins and his silos. So what he did was he tore it all down and he built bigger ones. Makes sense. Good plan there. And it reminds me a little bit of our history in America, of how we are such a blessed country. We really are. And I was just kind of thinking as, as time went on here in America and how people used to store their possessions in like a hope chest, a cedar chest at the foot of the bed. And then they outgrew that. And so they started, we, we started designing closets into our homes. Guess what? Most of the world doesn't have closets in their homes, right? In Brazil, we didn't have closets, all right? So we started designing closets in our homes, and then what happens when you, when you outgrow your closet? Well, you begin to stuff your garage, you with me? And then when the garage gets a little too stuffed, and maybe you're even at the point where you're parking cars 
<laughs> not in the garage because you need that. Then you put in an outbuilding, you know, and eventually perhaps you even have to rent um, a locker at like a self-storage facility because you've get, got so much stuff. I mean, if you want a real education and how God has blessed us and how much stuff we have, just take your family, take your kids to the junkyard sometime. I mean, at the junkyard, you are going to see piles and piles of stuff, as far as you can see, of stuff that people worked hard for, saved up for, finally were able to buy, and then either that stuff broke or often, often, perhaps most of the time, they just acquired so much stuff they had to eventually throw a bunch of it away, right? Um, but yeah, that's kind of the culture we live in. We, we have been so blessed, so prospered by God that we just don't even know where to put all of our stuff and, and right now, one of the th- I don't know about you guys, what you watch on TV. I love reality shows. I'll watch about any reality show on TV, but my favorites right now are these shows uh, like Storage Wars um, on A&E or Auction Hunters on Spike TV, or now there's even Storage Wars Texas based right here in Dallas on A&E. And these shows are, are fun because um, at a store, self-storage facility, if somebody doesn't pay their bill for like three or four months, I, I don't know what the exact number is, the, the locker is auctioned off, the contents are auctioned off. So these people, these characters, you know, are bidding on this stuff, and they, sometimes they find this incredible stuff, sometimes they just find boxes of old sweaters and newspapers. I mean, but, but, is, but self-storage, self-storage. So this week I thought, hmm. I don't remember ever seeing a self-storage facility in Brazil. I mean, ever. I never saw one. So I thought, hmm, I wonder if those are common in the rest of the world. And so I like get on Wikipedia, the source of all the knowledge these days. And Wikipedia says, I think there are 58,000 storage facilities on planet Earth. 46,000 of those are right here in the United States. There are 2.53 billion square feet of storage space in the United States because we just don't know where to put all of our stuff. Did I mention the you are here arrow? Yeah, this, this parable's for us. This parable's for us. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with renting self-storage, okay? No, don't, that's not the takeaway. That's not a point you need to write down on your outline this morning. Um, I'm certainly not saying it's a sin to be prosperous. Thank God for prosperity. Thank God for the ability that wealthy people have to bless others. That's a great thing. What's wrong is being fixated on money. Or as Jesus says, love of money, devoted to money. What's wrong is being stingy with what the Lord has blessed you with, stingy with the kingdom of God, stingy with other people in need who are around you. What's wrong is self-storage. What's wrong is hoarding the cash um, and the possessions. What happens is you find that you are at that, at some point you are walking down a dark journey that brings no glory to God, and in the end, surprise, no joy to yourself. So when Jesus tells this parable of a rich fool, Jesus does not give the parable a happy ending. Jesus gives the parable an honest ending. After years of working dawn till dusk, amassing this vast fortune, this fellow is now ready to retire. He is ready to take it easy. But before he can make that trip to Fiji, before he can build that giant swimming pool behind his hacienda, God takes his life. 
And now none of that stuff he can use anymore. It's going to be divided up amongst his heirs. The story was meant for us. I think Jesus is looking me in the eye when he, when he has that conclusion in verse 21. This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. And so this story in Luke 12, together with, with kind of a commentary that, G, that, that Paul gives us in 1 Timothy chapter 6, this is a trail map for financial prosperity. This is a trail map for a God's eye view of what it means to be wealthy, right? And the first thing I want you to write down this morning on the outline is this. It is to revolutionize your definition of success. It's not tweak it. It's not add a little bit on. It is revolutionize the way you define what is success for me. It's not how much money you make. It's what you make of the money you have. It's how you, it's how you use the money, and it's what the money does to you. If you measure success, if you measure the rich farmer here based on a metric that is purely how much money was he able to get, he was very successful. He really was. But Jesus lets us know that this guy may have been making piles of cash here. This guy may have been making a lot of money, but he wasn't a success. He may have been making great time. It just wasn't on the right trail. Since he was all about self-storage, his success became a curse. All right. According to Jesus, one of the worst possible ways that we can measure success, one of the worst scoreboards that we can use to measure how successful a man or woman has been is to count up how much cash and how much stuff they have. Okay, that's, not, that's not my definition, that's Jesus. Remember what he said in, in verse 15? Jesus said, life is not measured by how much one owns. That's why I prayed over this message more than usual this week. I prayed for me, I prayed for you, I prayed for us. Because this is a message from Jesus that is coming into a place, into a culture. And I'm thinking about North Dallas. It could be anywhere perhaps in America. But I'm thinking of North Dallas. This message is coming into a place where, I'm sorry Jesus, we do measure how successful a person is by how much stuff they have. We absolutely do that in North Dallas. So I prayed over this because I knew this is flying in the face of the messages that we are bombarded with every day that really that is how you measure the worth of a person. We call it their net worth. That means how much money they made, how much money they've accrued. And so we're bombarded by this every day. That is how we define success. That makes it hard for us to hear this message. Right? The other temptation here that makes it hard for us to hear what Jesus is saying is because we live in a place of so much wealth, of so much prosperity, because we live in this place, there is a natural temptation to compare myself to somebody else. There, there are a lot of people wealthier than me. There are a lot of people wealthier than you within 20 square miles around us. There are a lot of people greedier than me. 
So that makes it very easy for me to hear this message and to sort of insulate my soul and think, this really isn't for me. This is for my neighbor. And so we need the Holy Spirit. We really do. We need for God to strip all of that stuff away and speak this truth straight into our hearts. All right. So if we're going to climb with Jesus to the summit this morning, if we're going to follow the path that leads to true success, then we're going to have to revolutionize the way we scoreboard success. We're going to have to revolutionize our definition of success. Check out Paul's commentary. This is in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Love it because it is written to people who have been prospered financially, people who really have been blessed, who are a wealthy group. And this is what Paul tells Timothy, who's working in Ephesus, to tell these people that he's working with. 1 Timothy 6, starting in verse 9. People who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. The love of money, you've heard this before, is the root of all kinds of evil. And for some people, craving money have wandered from the true faith, have pierced themselves with many sorrows. Now verse 17, teach those who are rich in this world, that would be us, (laughs) teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud, not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good, They should be rich in good works, generous to those in need, always ready to share with others. By doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life, right? This brings us to the second trail marker around God's roadmap for success. It's this, recognize the high cost of money addiction. Recognize the high cost of money addiction. You know, there was a guy one time that was asked, um, very successful fellow, what's your secret? And he said, well, there are, there are really two, two rules that I follow that absolutely guarantee my success. One, don't tell people everything you know. And two, praise God, he tells us everything. God doesn't hide anything for us. And one of the things he tells us is we need to recognize money addiction carries with it a pretty high price tag. Remember the housing bubble? Sure you do. The housing bubble? I didn't even know what a housing bubble was until 2008. Um, Financial collapse follows that um, just a few years ago. Some blame poor government oversight. Um, Some blame... Uh, the banks that were, that were so greedy and so were just lending money to just about anybody. And I'm no economist, but for me, what it comes down to is regular folks like you and I who just had to own homes that, frankly, we couldn't afford. I mean, what were we doing I'm talking generally about us in America. What were we doing buying homes with mortgage payments that stretched us to the breaking point? A money addiction or a possessions addiction 
causes regular folks to spend beyond their means, causes regular people who normally make good decisions to max out their credit cards. Um, They get into a house that's really more than they need, more than they can afford, and when enough people who are addicted to stuff do this, it becomes epidemic, and when it becomes epidemic, financial system is in crisis. Were the banks greedy? Well, my opinion is sure. I mean, you may differ on that. Um, Could more government oversight have helped? Maybe. But what it really comes down to is the banks were feeding off the hunger that folks like us had to have bigger and better, and especially better than the next guy over. Listen to these words in 1 Timothy 6, 9. Listen carefully to these words of Paul. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. And while I'm no economist, those sound like words that could have been on the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal in late 2008. Plunge many men into ruin and destruction. So God wants not only for you and I to revolutionize the way we define success, He wants for us also to recognize the high price tag that a money addiction carries, a love of money. All right, let's go to the third thing here this morning. The third trail marker along Scripture's path to financial prosperity, to life prosperity, is um, it is returning to the source returning to the source, getting back to God. In the parable of the rich farmer, I mean, as you listen to this rich farmer talking to himself, it is all about him. It's all centered around number one, which for him is his retirement. So in 10 times, in three verses, he talks about himself. I'll build bigger barns for myself. Um, I will store my grain. I mean, it's all about me over and over. More personal pronouns than a Charlie Sheen interview. This guy is all about himself. He had forgotten that the prosperity he, he enjoyed came from God. Someone shared this quote with me this week from a Shenandoah movie with Jimmy Stewart back in the 60s. Um, he's this wealthy farmer, and at one point in the movie, he prays before a meal, and here, here's the prayer that he prays. Lord, we cleared this land. We plowed it, sowed it, harvested it. We wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be eating if we hadn't done it ourselves. We worked doggone hard for every crumb and morsel, but we thank you just the same anyway for the food we are about to eat. Funny prayer, but it certainly exposes the way a lot of times folks think about what they have. The reality is, whatever talents I have, whatever talents you have, whatever intelligence, whatever health, whatever opportunities, the mere fact that you were born in a place like America instead of Ghana or Rwanda, you need to thank God for that. You need to thank God for that. And so, 1 Timothy 6, 17, Paul says this. He says, hope in God who richly provides us with what? Everything. Hope in God who provides everything you have is from God. 
And so Jesus and Paul are calling us to return to God, to return to the source. In Proverbs chapter 3, there's this beautiful proverb about our wealth. Verse 9 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the best part of everything you produce. Biblically from ancient times, this is on your outline as well. Biblically from ancient times, the starting place for returning to God with your finances is the tithe. It's giving 10% to God. And then they would do a lot of other great things. I mean, they would help the foreigner and help the needy and help the orphan and the widow. They would do a lot of other things. But the starting point for them was returning 10% to God. It's not so much an Old Testament principle or a New Testament principle as it is an eternal principle. Because before the law of Moses ever came along, before it was ever written down and and told to to the Hebrew people, you have to give 10% back to God, Abraham decided to do it, right? And he did it, right? He did it not as a rule. He did it as a remembrance for all that God had given him. And Jesus even echoes it when he's talking to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23. So giving 10% to God is a biblical starting place for you if you've decided to honor God with your wealth. For my family, this practice is a constant reminder each month that all of our blessings come from God. Everything we have, He's allowed us to have. It's basically on loan. We're going to have to give it all up at the end anyways. Well, some folks think, and you may have thought this before or know people that think, some people think that being financially destitute is what God wants. Some people think that, that it's somehow more spiritual to be poverty-stricken, and maybe God has called you to take on a vow of poverty. Maybe so. And if that's what He's called you to do, then, then God bless you, and may your life honor God in that way. Just don't be a mooch on other people. That would be what I'd ask. But here's the funny thing. Scripture teaches us about these blessings that we receive from God. And I'm not trying to make fun of people who've taken a vow of poverty. That's a beautiful thing. But Scripture tells us, this is the the fourth thing this morning, Scripture tells us to rejoice in our blessings. Not feel bad about the way you've been blessed, but to rejoice, to celebrate your blessings. It's good to enjoy the prosperity that God has allowed you to have. It delights God when you enjoy the gifts that He has given you. Paul reminds us in verse 17, it's God who richly provides us with everything. And here are the final words of that verse we started reading a few minutes ago. For your enjoyment. He's provided you everything for your enjoyment. So enjoy that nice meal at your favorite restaurant. Enjoy a trip to the slopes with your family. Enjoy the car that you've been able to purchase within your means. All right? Enjoy those things. If we're being wise, if we're being generous with what we have, then then we are called to enjoy it. Now, you probably haven't heard a lot of sermons on just enjoying all of the things that we have because, honestly, I think it's because we've done a pretty good job at fulfilling this commandment. We do a pretty good job at enjoying stuff, but it's in the Bible. And it's not an endorsement to say you need to enjoy your wealth. It's not an endorsement of the rich fool of his self-storage philosophy on life. What it is, is an invitation for God's children to celebrate the way he has taken care of them. And so I believe in my heart, with all humility, with all gratitude, that a day at the beach or a fine meal can be a worship experience. If you remember the source. All right, number five here as we finish up. Release your financial blessings into the lives of others. 
into the lives of others. Exactly what the rich fool did not do. It was all about accruing things for himself. Verse 16 of 1 Timothy 6, Paul says, Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. Several years back, when we were in Rio, and we had been there for six or seven years, and, and things got financially difficult for our family. And it wasn't because our contributors had dropped out or support had been dropped or whatever. I mean, our, our contributors had been very generous uh, with us. What had happened was really a combination of two things. First, in Brazil, there's always inflation. I mean, like every month, the prices are going up. So the prices are going up. What happened is Brazil kind of got its economy, finally got its economy kind of straightened out. So the dollar started dropping in value. We got paid in dollars. So prices going up, our salary dropping meant there was this gap and there was this sense of shortage and stress in our family when it came to money. Well, a friend of mine said, I've got an idea. He said, why don't you talk to Byron Nelson? And I was like, the Byron Nelson? And he said, yes, the pro golfer, Byron Nelson. I said, okay. He said, this guy is, is a generous Christian man. And, and I bet he might be able to do something. So kind of cutting out some of the stuff in the middle there, um, we were invited, our family was invited to the Nelson Ranch, um, to Byron and, and Peggy Nelson's house in Roanoke. Um, I mean, this guy had been very successful as a golfer, you know, um, 11 straight tournament victories, a record no one's even gotten close to in professional golf. And so their ranch is located on 11 straight drive <laughs> in Roanoke, Texas. And so we got to go there and spend an afternoon. Peggy fixed this marvelous lunch for us, and, and we ate. And then we heard these wonderful stories as Byron just told us these stories from the pro tour and all this. And then finally, before I could ever actually ask for money, Byron said, look, here's the deal. Um, a while back, um, some guys came by from the oil company, knocked on my door, and said, would you mind if we just did some survey work here on your land and see if there's, see if there's any oil or natural grass here on your land? He said, sure, take a look. So they found some natural gas, he said. Um, we've got natural gas. So they put in some wells, and then they started sending me this check. You know, every month it's, it's around $800 a month. And he said, look, Gordon, I didn't do anything to deserve this money. I feel like God just, boom, just put it underneath my land here. So God want, I feel like God wants me to do something with this money. So I'm just going to send these checks on to you and your work in Brazil. And so all of a sudden, our financial needs were met. And, and then to kind of finish the day off, the, Peggy sent us away with all these awesome presents. I mean, I had an armload of, of, of golf shirts from Byron's 11 straight clothing line. Um, he gave me a homemade clock that he made out in his wood shop, and the kids got presents and everything. But they just, they just blessed us, and they became for me, and you have these in your life, they came for me, became for me kind of a reference point of what it looks like when somebody is rich toward God. They, they, they became for me a model of Christian generosity. And you and I are on a journey. Each one of us is on a journey. And this morning, what happens in the stories in Luke chapter 12 with the real guy wanting the inheritance money and the fictional character of the rich fool and the story Jesus tells, what happens there is Jesus shows us the epic fail of a rich fool walking down the wrong trail at full speed. And he shows us that so that these failures can become trail markers for you and me. 
so that we can see him, so that we can see the story, and so that we can make the adjustments we need to make in our lives. That's why Jesus tells these stories. There's a better way. There's a better approach. Now, here's the thing. You are going to make some wrong turns. There will be some detours. You will find yourself at points because of decisions you made or perhaps even by accident without even knowing it. You will find yourself on a wrong trail now and again. It will happen. In fact, there is only one person in the history of the world who grew up and made no wrong turns, and that is Jesus. That's what makes him such an excellent trail guide. That's what makes Jesus such a perfect traveling companion for us. And so this morning, perhaps for you, the choice you need to make is accepting Jesus, is being baptized into Jesus, is saying, I don't want to journey alone anymore. Perhaps for you, it is something in, in your finances. You've been down the wrong path. Maybe you've been way off track. Maybe you've been kind of off track. And the call is this. It's good news because you can always turn around. You can always hop onto the right trail. The call is to decide to be rich toward God. And the promise is the Lord will provide you with the strength and the resources that you need to make it to the summit. All right? So to those willing to trust the source, this verse in 1 Timothy 6, verse 19, we'll just finish with this. To those willing to trust the source, the creator, the God of the universe, for those willing to trust him with their finances, Paul says this. By doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life. 